give a little bit of context as well to looking at the, the, the couple of arguments for theism that I've been given to deal with. Uh, and that is to put in the context more broadly of thinking about uh, how we know things, what philosophers call epistemology, it's how we know stuff, and the cultural uh, dominance of the idea that we know things through science, that that's the only way to know things. Um, I've called this, um, you know, this is a bit of Latin at the beginning here, scientia science and some arguments for, for theism. Um, scientia is simply the Latin word that meant knowledge. And so Thomas Aquinas, a uh, Christian theologian back in the 13th century, uh, famously described theology, um, reasoning about God, uh, as the queen of the sciences. He thought of theology as a science. But that's because science, the word scientia, just meant a thing you know, okay. a thing you know about. Um, so it is the queen of the sciences in, in as much as um, we have all sorts of disciplines in the university about things we think we know things about. But we, as thinking beings, try and put all of our knowledge together into one world view that takes into account everything we think we know from all of the different sources of information that we have. Um, and, and for Aquinas, that can include divine revelation as much as what we would call science, but which didn't, that, that term didn't even exist back then. Uh, he would have called it uh, natural philosophy, philosophizing about the natural world, what we now call science. So scientia, knowledge, uh, was uh, understood to be a much broader thing than natural philosophy, science. But nowadays, a lot of people, and this is something pushed very much by the new atheists, get the idea that the only way, or the only reliable way to know anything is through science, through natural philosophy, through empirical, um, through our senses, ultimately. And intuition, just to, a couple of quotes about intuition. Harateus says, most people in the world intuitively, a sort of gut instinct, rather than something you've argued through, as it were, intuitively recognize that there's more to life than just atoms and laws of physics and so on, the things that science studies. More than naturalism or physical science can describe. A lot of people intuitively have that idea, but then are persuaded out of that intuition, particularly by this cultural acceptance of, well, you can only really know something if you've got scientific reason to believe it. So all that intuition must be unreliable, and you must look at the world through the lenses, through the spectacles of science, as it were. Morland and Craig talked about the role of intuition in philosophy, um, which of course is a subject that undergirds science, because in order to do science, you have to, for example, think logically. But logic is one of the disciplines of philosophy. And they say in philosophy, in subjects like logic, which are crucial to science, intuitions play a very important role. Now, our intuitions aren't infallible. We can, be, we can have mistaken wrong intuitions. 
but they are a bit more lacking. Prima facie, on the face of it, at least at first appearance, our intuitions are justified. That is, if you have an intuition about something being true, um, it is reasonable for you to think that you're right about that until someone shows you that you're wrong. Rather than approaching things the other way around, this is something that the British philosopher Richard Swinburne is the principle of credulity, the principle of when to trust the way things seem to be. And Swinburne says, if, if you didn't take things on trust initially, prepare, prepare to say, well, I could be wrong, how would I be persuaded that I was wrong? By you showing me some evidence and reason to think I'm wrong. But why should I believe that evidence? Well, because I trust that it's real. But I could be mistaken about that, couldn't I? The, the mere fact that you could be wrong about something isn't a good reason for doubting it. Uh, when you have an intuition that something is reliable or real or trustworthy, Actually, the sensible thing is to start out by trusting, but because you start out by trusting, you're, you're, you're prepared to trust other things that might eventually convince you that you were wrong. And you, get, you, you become convinced that you're wrong about A by trusting you know, B, which is a set of evidence that overturns the initial appearance of things. Um, so if you carefully reflect on something and a certain viewpoint intuitively seems to be true, then you're, you're justified, you're, you're rational to believe that viewpoint in the absence of overriding counter-arguments. You might say, I, I, I could be wrong, you could show me that I'm wrong, but actually it's your job to show me that I'm wrong. It's not my job to show you that I'm right. Philosophers will talk about the, the, who has the burden of proof, the, the onus of, of proof in a case. Like in a court of law, when someone's in a court of law and they've been uh, accused of committing a crime, we hold that person innocent until proven guilty. It's the prosecution's job to show that they're guilty. It's not the defence's job to prove that they're innocent. We don't say, you're innocent, now prove that, that, you're, you, that you didn't do the murder, you see. And since we either trust or we don't trust things, we, we face that choice about all sorts of ideas, about our intuitions about the world. And actually, many people would argue that the sensible thing to do is to start out with trust. So does, does this, we have this, many people have this intuition, there's more to life than, than, than you can see through the, the lenses of science, as it were. Does the cultural idea that, well, actually, it, you might think it's just obvious when you look up at the, the Milky Way at night or something, it just seems obvious to you that there's a God, say. But actually, you can't rely on that because the only reliable way to know things is through science. Now, it, has the person who said that actually met their burden of proof to show that your intuition is wrong? Now, culturally, people assume that they, that they have, that they're right when, people, when they say that, and I think they're wrong when they say that, and that's important to note. So this is atheist Alex Rosenberg talking about scientism, the idea that the only reliable way to know things is through science, in his book The Atheist Guide to Reality. His scientism 
the conviction that the methods of science are the only reliable way to knowledge of anything. Treating science as our exclusive guide to reality. He says that's the only way to be rational. If you're a sensible, rational person, you must treat science as the only way to acquire knowledge. And this leads on, as, as Nancy Pearson, in her wonderful um, book, Saving Leonardo, points out, to the, the very culturally prevalent idea of the divide between facts and values. Now, that's a fact, that's about values, that's just your opinion. Now, facts are objective, opinions are subjective, facts are the things that science discovers, and everything else therefore by, by default, is just a matter of opinion. Yeah, uh, and in ethics, it would be just a matter of value uh, in this particular case. So this separation of facts from values, and of course this will become important when we talk about the moral argument for God, uh, is a central key to unlocking the, the contemporary modern Western mind. So she says, people have always known there's a difference between, between is and ought, just a, a description of what is the case, and talking about what should be the case. Um, but people always thought that both types of statement dealt with questions of truth. It's true that there is a table here. It's true that I ought to love my enemies. Okay. Both types of things, but nowadays, under the, the umbrella of, of scientism, if the only reliable way to know things is through science, it very quickly, as we see, leads on to the idea that well, you can't know anything about, say, values. And that means that all that value talk, ethics, and so on, is just subjective. It's just to do with you or your culture. Um, and there's nothing, we're not talking about truth when we make claims about what's right and wrong in the way that we are when we make claims about tables and chairs and atoms and so on. Yeah. So this distinction between facts and values, people over the years have, have, have tried various methods to keep that wall, that distinction, to keep a, a, a wall up between the ideas of fact and restricting that to what science can know and everything else, including values, which is a, a stuff that you can't really know because it's not a matter of truth. So, back in the early 20th century, there was a movement in philosophy called positivism that had the idea that talk about things outside of the sciences, including about ethics, uh, was just meaningless. So it wasn't even that, that if I said, you know, um, torturing small children for fun is wrong, they would have said that statement is not, it's not true, but it's not false. It's just, it's just meaningless. It's just as if I'd said, <laughs> it has the same kind of rational value. It might, I might use it to express my emotion or something, they said, but it's not really making a truth claim that's either true or false. It's just nonsense. Uh, and this movement help that anything um, metaphysical really was nonsense. Uh, later on, this is where the new atheists are today, but sometimes they fall into this. Most of the new atheists today fall under B here, that the scientific Rosenberg's idea 
that the value propositions and things outside of the sciences are they're at least unknowable. They're not a matter of knowledge. They might be they might uh, be not nonsense, but they're not a matter of knowledge. Uh, just to say a matter of opinion or cultural relativity or something like this. Or it, there might be a truth value to it, but we can never know it because we can't get at it through science, say. Or just the straightforward naturalistic or materialistic idea that, that such propositions are just false. They say, torturing small children for fun is wrong. They say, no, that, that's not true. But it's, it's not that it's the opposite is true. It's not like torturing small children for fun is right. They're not saying that. They're just, they're just saying, well, that, that, that statement also is not true. There are no truths about morals. Mm. See? No truths. So they're all, all moral claims, whether I say cannibalism is good or cannibalism is bad, all such claims are just false. Because there's nothing out there objectively in the world that they're getting right or getting wrong. It's just all a matter of what, I'm, what we're thinking up here. So Ayer, uh, particularly his book Language, Truth and Logic, which was a set text when I was at university uh, 20 odd years ago, from 1936, he had what the positivists called this verification criteria. The philosophy at the time was obsessed with, with our use and understanding of language. And, and we took its eyes off the big questions and focused on how are we using language? What do you mean by this word? How do people use words? How do we confuse ourselves when using words? When is language meaningful? Now, what's the difference between the bits of Lewis Carroll's famous poem, Jabberwocky, uh, you know, Twas Brillig and the Flythe Toads did glaring nimble and wave, or Mumsy were the Mumroths and the Borogroves outbreak? Um, actually, if you look elsewhere in Lewis Carroll's writings, this is from um, Alistair and Looking Glass, um, you can find that Lewis gives you uh, a definition of all of those things, so you can translate it into terms that you understand, and actually, that first verse, it, it's all meaningful. But when I first say it to you, because you've never heard those words, it sounds like nonsense. And there are other bits of the poem where I say, well, that's just nonsense, because it's never defined anywhere. So how do we tell the difference between language that's meaningful and making a truth claim and language that isn't? And the verificationists said they have this, uh, this criteria, the verification criteria, and said the meaning of a statement, if it's not just true by definition, like you know, 2 plus 2 equals 4, or um, if you are unmarried, you are a bachelor. Um, those are just true by definition. Just, that's what the language means. That's how we have defined it. But if, if a truth claim isn't just true by definition, like a, a square has four corners. Now, you don't have to go out and look for some squares to see whether I'm right about that. <laughs> um, beyond that, the, the meaning of any statement must lay its ability to be empirically verified, that is checked out with the senses, ultimately. So, if I, if I say, uh, the moon is made of cheese, okay. that's a silly claim to make, but it is meaningful. You know what I mean by saying the moon is made of cheese. And, and it's meaningful because, not, it's not 
true by definition that the moon is made by our cheese. But suppose somehow you found yourself on the moon with a spoon. You would know what to do to check out, to verify or falsify that statement. If I was get to the moon and go, hmm, hmm, gorgonzo or whatever. Uh, yeah. Cheddar cheese, all that nice brown cheese. I love the brown cheese. You can't get it in England. <laughs> so, and those are the only types of language that are meaningful. It's true by definition, or you can check it out empirically. But that means anything that's metaphysical, including talk about right and wrong, is meaningless. Okay. Uh, and also to say, as he says, to say that God exists is to make a metaphysical beyond the sciences, beyond physics, etc., utterance, which cannot be either true or false. So for the, for the verificationists, actually being an atheist was meaningless. If someone said, I believe that God does not exist, I think it is true that there is no God, they're, they're talking nonsense. But then so are the people who believe that there is a God, and so are the people who say, I don't know whether or not there's a God. God might exist or he might not, but I'm not sure, the agnostics. That's also meaningless. Because AJ would say, what do you mean by God? Can I smell? Can I smell God? Can I, can I prod God? Can I look at him down a telescope or a microscope? Meaningless. See. However, some philosophers very quickly pointed out that at least certain religious, yes? Uh, would you say that agnostics would be uh, logical uh, positivists? No, so um, logical positivists are a whole other category. Uh, so they would say that the, the atheist and the theist and the agnostic are all talking nonsense. The agnostics, those who say, it doesn't even matter what you're saying because it isn't the time. Uh, no, no, again, because they would say, about what doesn't it matter that we're saying anything? Yeah? So if they say, I don't care about that whole God question, it, you know, who cares? AJ Air would say, about that whole what? It's just as if you said, I don't care about it. You see, and he'd say, what was that word? That was nonsense. Yeah? <laughs> so it, it removes the whole question of God and it kind of shoves it over there. <laughs> We're not even getting close to even asking the question about God and the rationality of belief in God or, or not. But some, some people, like John Hink, pointed out that at least certain religious claims could actually fit the verification criteria. So particularly, I mean, Christian religion makes claims about what will happen in the future if Christianity is true. It makes claims like, uh, there will be a general resurrection of the dead, and the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, the resurrection of the body, and so on. So those are all physical, maybe transformed, but still empirically knowable. Realities. So John Hicks said, um, "Well, you know, by God, you know, I, I, I mean uh, the cause of the general resurrection of the dead that you will experience in the future." 
So that is potentially verifiable, just not now. But I still, I still get under the yeah. So it, they found it very difficult to define this verification criteria. Obviously, the job it's, it's trying to do is to say, scientifically knowable, good. Other stuff, particularly religion and God, bad. But actually, it's very difficult to, to try and draw that line consistently. <laughs> so that the right kind of things fall on the right side and the wrong kind of things fall on the wrong side. You know. um, also, the verification criteria, and this, this is the doozy, the killer, it doesn't fit the verification criteria. Now, this is a typical trick. Philosophers always want you to know if an idea is consistent with itself. Because if something, if something is consistent, internally consistent or coherent, it could be true at least. It might not be true, but it could be true. If something is internally at odds with itself, in, inconsistent, self-contradictory, then it can't be true. Okay. So again, if I, if I say, oh, oh, I stubbed my toe the other day against a square circle, you don't need to go out and look and see if there are any square circles around to see if I'm telling the truth or not. You immediately, because you know the concept of square and the concept of circle, you know they don't fit together. And if I try and put them together and say, there is such a thing as a square circle, that's a self-contradictory idea. It doesn't make any sense. But look, if we take the verification criteria and, and apply it to itself, see if it meets its own standard, See if it has integrity with itself, as it were. So the idea is, language is only meaningful if it's true by definition, or you could experimentally, empirically check it out with your senses. That claim itself, is it true by definition? No, it's just a, it's a claim, but it's not true by definition. Is that claim something that we can show to be true by empirically going and looking at something, or tasting something, or smelling something? Or... No. I mean, what experiment would you do to show that the verification criterion was, was, was meaningful? So it doesn't actually meet its own demand that it's making to everybody else. So, according to its own definition of meaning and meaninglessness, the verification criteria is meaningless. So it's self-contradictory, so it cannot be true. In other words, that it must be possible for language to be meaningful, even if it isn't true by definition, and even if it isn't something that you can verify empirically. Did you follow that bit, or do I need to ask me questions? I'm happy to come back to, to something. This, that's the, the most kind of philosophical point. This, this is an, an easier, more sort of intuitional common sense point. It seems just obvious that we do know things that have meaning that don't fit the verification criteria. So it's making a truth claim, and if I just see something else that just obviously doesn't, doesn't fit with what it's claimed is true, 
I can say, well, there must be something wrong with that verification criteria, even though I don't know what is wrong with it. Um, there must be something wrong with it because I've got, I've got a counterexample to it. Um, so if uh, the claim is, you know, so ethical talk, say, is meaningless, well, surely if I have the, 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 the intuition, it just seems obvious to me that um, torturing small children for fun is wrong, is true. And so it must be meaningful, because it, it, it is true, isn't it, that torturing small children for fun is wrong. <laughs> I, I mean, you, are you seriously telling me, AJR, that if you were walking down the street and you saw someone torturing a toddler, and going, don't worry everyone, don't worry, I'm, I'm enjoying it. <laughs> and the, 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 you, the, the, they would say, oh, well, that's just a matter of opinion. There's, there's no truth of the matter. Um, all, all these people are going, oh, stop doing that, that's wrong. They're just talking nonsense. I will walk on by. <laughs> really? You know, that just strains my, my credulity, my trust in the intuition that here's something that I know that, that therefore must be meaningful, but which doesn't fit what AJ and the verificationists say I must do in order to be meaningful. So their claim about meaning must be off somehow. I don't know how, but it must be off. Here's a counterexample. Or I say something like, oh, look at that rainbow, isn't it beautiful? Well, if, if, if that's meaningful, seems to be meaningful. Um, there does seem to be a difference between saying a rainbow is beautiful and saying, you're a bit more by you, though. They're like the Swedish chef of the Muppets. Although Lars is Swedish, but he does love the Swedish chef, so that's fine. Um, <laughs> There just seems to be obviously a difference there. <laughs> you know, one is meaningful and one's not. Um, but the, you know, the example doesn't fit what the verificationists are saying, so they must be wrong. Uh, even AJR later on in life admitted that he thought the verificationist theory was wrong. <laughs> and people who still follow this train don't always grapple with the false that later on in life he, he said things like the verification principle is defective, nearly all of it was false. Positivism died a long time ago. I don't think much of language, truth, and logic, his book, is true. I think it's full of mistakes, and so on. He wrote it as a, as a young guy, and he matured as he went on thinking about these things, and he gave up on that theory, and most philosophers very quickly did as well. It, it dominated thinking in Oxford academic philosophy in the sort of 30s and 40s. When people like A.J. Eyre and Gilbert Ryle were young professors, who later on in life were the PhD thesis supervisors of people like Daniel Dennett, the new atheists of the world, A.C. Grayling, sort of did their doctoral work at Oxford under professors who had had this view, that just one intellectual generation on and they're very influenced by that kind of thinking still. Um, so here is Richard Dawkins recently falling into this now, this is, is dead within the academic philosophy world, this way of thinking about language. 
But here's Richard Dawkins um, from a book published in 2006 saying there is a non-overlapping and exhaustive distinction, so here's on the one hand and the other hand, between ideas that are false or true about the real world, factual matters, and, on the other hand, ideas about what we ought to do. Normative or moral ideas for which the words true and false have no meaning. So that is, that is AJA logical positivism. Here's Richard Dawkins, a generation later, still spouting the theory that the guy who made it popular in the previous generation has given up on. <laughs> but he's just carrying forward the sort of influence of the kind of thinking that was around in the air when he was at Oxford in the 19... whatever, in the you know, mid to <laughs> early, late 20th century. So what most people have done culturally, that they just shifted from this kind of verificationism, empirical knowledge is, a, is about when language is meaningful, that died, but then people just shifted to saying, okay, well, it's not about when language is meaningful, but it is about when we can know things, when we can know it to be true or false. <coughs> So this then that becomes scientism. So you go from positivism to scientism, which which turns the positivist criteria of meaning into a criteria of knowing. See? And again, that still tries to uphold this distinction between facts that you know through science and metaphysical things, including talking about right and wrong, which is just subjective and not something you know. This fact value divide continues to be upheld just by, by a different kind of rule, as it were. Um, so here are just various examples of new atheists putting forward to show that they really do make these kind of claims. Peter Atkins, the scientific method is the only means of discovering the nature of reality the only way of acquiring reliable knowledge. Or Stephen Hawking's recent book starts out by saying philosophy is dead because philosophers haven't kept up with, with science and physics. Scientists are the bearers of the torch of discovery in our quest for knowledge. That's in the introduction to his book. And then he, he and his co-author then spend the majority of the rest of the book doing philosophy very, very badly. <laughs> <laughs> Which isn't surprising, but I think it's a dead subject. Um, there's you know, very little in the book about cosmology. It's, it's mainly about how do we interpret these speculative cosmological theories? What might that say about questions about God or meaning of life or whatever? Um, so they're trying to do philosophy. And they start off by a chapter or more on, on the philosophy of science. Uh, you know, questions like, what is science? Does science really give us knowledge about the world? Is it reliable? And so on. But those, those are not scientific questions. They're, they're not questions of science about the natural world. They're philosophical questions about the nature of science. And a question about science isn't a scientific question. It's a philosophical question, a metaphysical question. Philosophy is the subject that deals with all the questions about all the other subjects. <laughs> um, 
So, but again, if you take this criteria, this, this scientific demand, it basically boils down to saying, in order to be rational, any belief must be justified by the, through the scientific method, through empirical evidence and so on. Again, that's self-contradictory. If someone says the only way to know anything is, is through science, say, oh, that's interesting. What experiment did you do to show that? Yes. <laughs> you know, um, that claim, science is the only way to know anything, can't be justified by empirical evidence or, or through the scientific uh, method. And indeed, another way of thinking about this, why we've got the chain here, it entails an infinite regress that can never be satisfied. So if I say, um, I'm not going to trust my intuition that there's God, or that torturing children is wrong, or, or what have you, I'm not going to trust any of my intuitions until I've got good scientific reason to believe something. Um, it seems to me that there's a table here in the room, but you know, I could be wrong about that. Maybe I'm in the matrix. To use an old-fashioned reference now, dating me, uh, you know, I could be wrong about this. Maybe it's uh, an illusion or delusion, or I'm suffering from psychosis or something. Um, so I better, uh, to be rational, I better better hold off believing that there really is a table there and until I've got some good scientific reason for believing it. Uh, so call my belief that there's a table here A. Um, suppose we try and get together some scientific evidence in favour of believing A. Let's call it B. And you say, here, don't worry, Pete, here's the scientific case for believing A. And I say, oh, okay, that's, that's good. But of course, you know, I, I could be mistaken, you could be mistaken about B supporting A. Or, or the things that you've pointed to in B really existing. Maybe, maybe we're all in the matrix. <laughs> maybe we're all suffering from delusions or whatever. Um, we really better not believe B or that B really does support the truth of A, as it seems to, but we really better not believe that if we want to be rational, until we've got some good scientific empirical reason for believing B. Let's call that C. Now, the thing is, if we follow the, the scientific rule, we're going to have to keep doing that. And that means we will never think that we rationally believe anything or a great deal of things, at the very least. Yeah. Uh, a great deal of things that we need to believe if we're ever going to do science. <laughs> we couldn't justify uh, through that empirical methodology if we always had to prove everything empirically. Indeed, you can't, in arguing for anything, you can't prove everything. You, you have to argue from somewhere in order to argue to a conclusion. Um, you have to argue from a finite number of steps before the conclusion so that you can go from your premises to the conclusion. That's what an argument is. It takes you from the premises of the argument to the conclusion of the argument. But in order to do that, there has to be a finite number of steps in the argument, and that means there has, there has to be things in the argument, ultimately, that you haven't argued for. And it's like, well, maybe there are things that I haven't argued for, but I could argue for that are premises in the argument. But then again, you say, face the same problem. Because ultimately, however far back you track 
the arguments that I could make in support of the premises of the argument you're dealing with, eventually you must come back to things that you just you, you take as being true without having argued for them. Because they're, they're just even, none of us has the infinite amount of time that would be needed for us to argue for everything. It's just, you know, um, so arguments ultimately track back to, well, where is the sensible place to start from? Back to, back to the point I made at the beginning about intuitions and trusting our intuitions in the absence of reason to think that we've gone wrong. It's about the, the burden of proof and rationality. Rationality is not about proving everything, nailing it all down. It's about being wise about what beliefs to accept. And yes, sometimes that, that means going into an argument about something, but that can't be everything there is about being rational, being wise about believing things. Um, because, well, you couldn't, you can't do it. <laughs> and it's not wise to try and do something that's impossible. Yeah. Scientism as a way of saying we know things through science and we're looking at various problems with that and some of the background to that in the roots of, of positivism. Sure. So basically saying science uh, describes, scientific theories describe and predict things about the natural world. But ethics uh, doesn't fall under that heading. Ethics is about values uh, that prescribe and obligate our behaviour. It's about what should be not just simply a value-neutral description of what is the case. There are uh, a value description of reality saying certain value things are valuable or are not valuable, that certain acts should be pursued or should be refrained from. So, so science will tell me that if I mix certain chemicals with my aunt's martini in the morning, uh, death will be the result. Uh, but science can't tell me uh, whether uh, putting those chemicals in my auntie's drink makes me a better person or not. Yeah, it might make me a richer person, <laughs> since I inherit the country estate, um, but it won't tell me whether I'm a, a good person, whether that's a good thing to do, a bad thing to do, and so on. Um, now, the scientistic perspective comes on top of our intuitions, against our intuitions about things like values, and says, now here's a rule about when you can be rational to make a claim, when you can really know something, and so on. Uh, science is the only way to know anything. Now, of course, since science is the only way to know anything, and since science can't provide any knowledge about values of what should be the case, it follows that therefore we can't have any value knowledge. Mm. Okay? So that, that leads to this fact-value divide. Um, which we, as a Christian, I, I want to question and say, you know, is at least a possibility that there are facts about values. <laughs> that it is a fact that love is good. <laughs> and that, you know, um, um, you know just uh, you know, philosophers like these, these crazy you know, extreme examples of using you know, about torturing some child for fun, you know, because, uh, you know, that's wrong, you know, obviously. 
Um, so, um, you don't go from the science to your values, but does that mean that we have no value knowledge? Only if you buy into uh, the scientism here. I think it's true that science doesn't provide you the value knowledge, but I don't think it's true that science is the only way to know anything. And indeed, um, the fact that it just seems intuitively obvious that this is wrong, putting this arsenic in our labels tea, that is wrong, that's something I think I know, uh, I think that intuition is itself strong enough to, to overturn this claim that science is the only way to know anything. I think you can argue like this, that we do have value knowledge, it's obvious, but science can't provide any, justify any value knowledge, therefore science isn't the only way to know anything. Um, and it's not enough for people just to assert scientism, say, no, you must obey this, this rule. If I say, but that rule seems in conflict with something else that, that really seems rational for me to believe, how do you handle that? How do you, how do you defend against you know, this argument that says, no, you can know things outside of science? What do you do with the fact that in order to do science, it, it really does seem that you need to rationally believe certain things that science itself can't rationally justify for you, um, like you know, binding to the basic rules of logic, um, like even at a social level, to do science as a social practice, we need to adhere to certain ethical standards about um, accurately reporting our findings when we publish in a journal and so on, um, not deceiving other scientists. So, you know. um, well, that's not something that science tells you is bad. You, know, you might observe that it, it slows down the progress of science or something, but then that science itself is a good thing isn't something that you know through science, you see. Uh, so the new atheist Sam Harrison has put The Moral Landscape, which claims to be a book all about, here's the subtitle, How Science Can Determine Human Values, Seems like he's going to argue science does give you ethical knowledge. He's a moral objectivist. He thinks there really are moral values and that science can tell you what they are. Um, it's a bait and switch uh, exercise. And indeed, explicitly on page 37, he admits this. He says, science cannot tell us why, scientifically, we should value human well-being. His approach is to say, um, ethics is all about human well-being. Empiric you can empirically observe when a person is flourishing, in a general sense, doing well. Now, you can empirically observe that if I torture small children, they don't do as well at school as children who haven't been tortured, you know, something like this. So, look, empirical observation does tell you what's right and wrong. But then he admits that actually to buy into the, the, the basic idea that human flourishing, human well-being, is a good thing that ought to be promoted, that itself is not something that science can tell you. So science can help inform your moral discussions about things. It can tell you useful information to know that you need to take into account in your moral discussions. But science can't do the whole job for you. Uh, and he admits that. Science cannot tell us why we should value well-being, or even though he, he thinks he knows that we should value human well-being. Well, what, why do I think humans are important? Why, why not you know, the well-being of dumb beetles? 
if I were a dung beetle, wouldn't I think that was more important? And so on. <laughs> um, so, um, C.S. Lewis, because I, I like him, so actually this book on him. Um, interesting, he himself was, a, was an atheist who, as a very young man, uh, was involved in the First World War. He, he was injured uh, during a, an artillery barrage in the First World War and, and had to uh, go and recuperate, had to leave the army because he'd been injured and he had sh- various bits of shrapnel in him uh, for the rest of his life because at that stage of surgery it was too dangerous to go and operate. So he had some shrapnel quite close to his heart um, that they couldn't go in for and, uh, and so on. So he was, he was uh, a young man in, in the trenches of the First World War um, and an atheist at the time. And he, he would have said at the time, you know, one of my reasons I would have given you for being an atheist was the evil and suffering of the world. I just couldn't square that with God. But because he didn't think that talk about morals and ethics was, was values rather than about facts, he thought it was a fact that you know, what he experienced in the First World War was wrong, that that suffering was wrong, that it was evil, that any god worthy of the name ought not to have allowed that to happen. He thought that was a, a true, he was making truth claims about values, you see. So, thinking more deeply about the problem of, of suffering, uh, in his essay on living in the atomic age, he says this, if, if he came to realise that if nature, you know, space, time and matter, and that's it, that's all there is, if nature is the only thing in existence on a sort of materialistic worldview, then of course there can be no other source for our, our moral standards. Where do our moral ideas come from if nature is all there is? Well, they come from nature. Um, they must, like everything else, be the unintended, meaningless outcome of blind forces. So, say maybe our evolutionary history happens to have programmed us with um, a feeling of taboo and, and ugh, against incest or torturing children. But it's not as if you can you can uh, you can say and. Is that feeling I have about torturing children, is that getting anything accurately described about reality? Is that true? Is there some fact of the matter out there that, that, my, that my feeling is accurately putting me in touch with? One of the materials, well, if you say, well, well, no, all there is out there is just matter behaving according to the laws of physics. That's it. What are you talking about when you talk about moral values? You can you can talk about our subjective feelings and ideas and things, but that's just you know that's not facts that we get right or wrong. That's just the, the way we happen to have been constructed. But we've kind of we've, we've seen through that um, evolution may may be programmed me to feel that torturing children is wrong, but when it did that it wasn't being accurate or inaccurate according to the true nature of moral value. It was just blindly following the laws of nature to produce whatever outcome it happened to produce. It didn't get anything right or wrong, true or false, about reality. So 
When, as an atheist, Lewis complains, you know, there can't be a God because of all of this evil and suffering that's really wrong, and he starts thinking about it, and he says, well, actually, as an atheist, can I, can I even say that anything is re- you know, truly wrong or right? That my moral opinions and feelings are, are in touch with the reality, and if they're not, then what is my complaint? <laughs> if there's nothing that God ought to do or ought not to do, how do I use his failure to do it or not, you know, as a complaint against him? Uh, it's just my subjective opinion. Um, in a sense, I mean, if, if the naturalistic worldview is true, then really nothing is objectively evil. There is this fact value divide. But if there's this fact value divide, um, then I can't make the claim that something is objectively evil. But it is intuitively obvious to me that there are some things that are objectively evil. That, that there are moral truths that were the basis of my whole moral argument against God. But it follows from these that therefore naturalism is false. So if, if naturalism is true, there are no objective moral values out there. My moral opinions aren't getting anything true or false about reality. But something is objectively evil. That the suffering in the trenches of World War I really was bad. <laughs> therefore, naturalism is false as a worldview. Um, because in trying to limit, it tries to limit reality to what we can know through science. But here's something that I know that you can't, that isn't a reality that can be accessed through science. It can't be fitted into that science box, as it were. So there's more to reality than that. Now, of course, that doesn't get you immediately to God. That's a sort of negative argument against a, a, a materialistic, naturalistic worldview. But you can then turn it, as he later did very famously in the first book of his book, Mere Christianity. He popularised uh, a version of the moral argument that various moral philosophers of the time, like W. R. Sawley and so on, were making along these lines. He talks about, in another essay, his, this, this defiance of the good atheist, which he, he kind of hurls at an apparently ruthless and idiotic, idiotic cosmos. You know, there are these terrible things happening, and that's why I'm an atheist. These things are terrible, and they shouldn't happen. He says, well, this is really an unconscious homage. We're, we're sort of, we've had this, we're drawing unconsciously on this intuition that there's something real out there that doesn't fit within a naturalistic box. Where do I get this idea of the way things should be and shouldn't be from? Um, we're really recognising something that is, is infinitely valuable and authoritative. There is some sort, of, some sort of reality that really does determine the way things should be in distinction to how they just are, which is all you can fit within the naturalistic description. Um, you know, I, you either recognise more than the naturalistic worldview, or you, know, oh, you have to say mercy and justice were really only private whims of his own. He couldn't go on being indignant. You can't keep on making the, the, the problem of evil complaint if you don't really think that there is anything evil. Um, but that, that was the complaint that he was making. You can pose it as an internal problem, maybe, but then you internally grant the theist the existence of values and you still internally mount the moral argument anyway. So 
very quickly, um, a moral argument might go something like this. Premise one, just two premises and a conclusion. Premise one, if objective moral values exist, then a God exists. By objective we mean it's not a fact value divine, it's not just a matter of opinion and subject, subjective taste and so on in here. Uh, moral values, um, moral truth claims are things that have a truth value uh, and they don't depend upon finite creatures, they don't depend upon us. They're, they're valid and binding even if we think they're wrong. Even if, say, the Germans had won World War II and they succeed in uh, killing anyone who disagrees with them about the Holocaust being the right thing to do, so that every human being on the planet is someone who now thinks, yeah, the Holocaust was the right thing to do. Um, he says, in that situation, if you think you know, that could be a mistaken opinion, <laughs> if they could be wrong about that, that's because there's something outside of human opinion that we're talking about when we're talking about morals. It's, it's independent of humans. It doesn't depend on us. So if that kind of objective moral value exists, then God exists. Why believe that? Well, what, what is it in our experience and in our intuitions about morals that we come across, we meet in an, an objective moral fact? We meet ideals of the way things should be. There's some sort of intentionality in there. Uh, we meet ideals that prescribe their kind of commands about how things should be, how we should behave. They're not just scientific descriptions of how we do behave. In our moral experience, we, we feel we come across this force that says, no, you should love your children. Do this. It has a sort of authority behind it. It's not just a description of how we behave, because we know from the fact that we sometimes fail to behave that way. And and this, these prescriptions, these ideals that we should be kind of pursuing into the future, um, we're not just caused to behave in a certain way, we're pursuing a certain ideal. Um, they also have, a, a, as well as a sort of commanding, prescribing force, they have a sort of obligatory. I feel I, I'm obligated in, in morality. I'm, I have an obligation not to put the arsenic in my Aunt Mabel's drink in the morning, <laughs> you know, um, but <coughs> here's the thing, an intention or an ideal or, or an ideal moral character seems to require a mind or a personality, something over and beyond just a, an, an unintentional, impersonal system like the materialistic worldview gives you. A prescription or a command surely requires a prescriber or a commander. How do you have a command if there's no commander behind it? How do you have an obligation if there isn't someone to whom you are rightfully, correctly obligated? Someone who has a, a genuine moral authority that you are obligated by. Because how can I have an obligation to a thing rather than to a person. Okay? If I'm obligated, but that obligation I'm talking about doesn't depend on me or human society or culture, it's independent of us, individually and collectively, but I'm obligated to it. There's a kind of paradox there. It seems to, all of those moral terms seem to only make sense 
in terms of some sort of personal relationship. But a personal relationship that transcends, goes above and beyond you and me and us. So what person are we talking about, you see? Uh, and many atheists will admit this premise. There's lots of atheists who have said, yeah, there's this connection between God of some kind, worthy of, of obligation, uh, following, and objective moral values. Um, and they've said things like this with Jean-Paul Sartre. Um, he said he found it extremely disturbing that God no longer exists. Along with his disappearance goes the possibility of finding values in an intangible heaven. There'd, there'd no longer be any um, objective good out there, as it were. There'd be no infinite, no perfect consciousness to conceive of, of the right moral ideal. All we'd have would be our finite, infallible ideas about what's right, but there'd be no truth of the matter that we could out there that we'd be closer to or further away from, as it were. Um, Philosopher Julian Bergini is a British philosopher. So if there's no single moral authority, no one who has a, a, a rightful moral authority, you know, God, in other words, we have to, in some sense, create values. And that means that moral claims are not true or false. And they'd only be like true for me, or true for you, or true for our culture. You know, for our society, cannibalism is good. For your culture, cannibalism is bad. Yes, but is cannibalism good or bad? Well, it depends what culture you're in. Mm. That would be where it's sort of saying we'd be left with. So atheist uh, Dale Mackey, um, in the miracle of atheism, said that if there are objective values, um, then you'd have a defensible argument from morality to the existence of God. You recognise this connection between admitting objective moral values and having to admit some kind of a God. Um, but he was an atheist. So what does he do with the problem that that argument faces him with? He says that if we adopt instead a subjective account of morality, this problem would not arise. So he's prepared to kind of pay the price tag that the argument gives you, as any argument does, any argument says, either accept this conclusion or pay one of the price tags on this argument for rejecting the conclusion. You know? Um, and in this case, the, the price tag of, of rejecting the premise, there are moral truths, there are objective moral facts. And Mackey says he's willing to pay that price tag. He's willing to say, um, when you say the Holocaust was wrong, you are not saying something true. And he says, I'm, I'm prepared to kind of go there and say that in order to avoid the conclusion of having to say there's a God. <laughs> uh, more recently, uh, Michael Roos in his book Atheism, What Everyone Needs to Know uh, he starts off, this is encouraging he, he says, whatever else morality might be, it's not just an emotion or a preference, it's not just a subjective thing uh, stomping on little babies for fun is wrong even if the whole world thinks otherwise, so it's, it's independent of us subjective, the question then he says, is where does the objectivity of morality lie. The objectivity in the sense that it's independent of what we have to think about. Where does it come from? 
And he considers various solutions. He says natural solutions don't seem to work. He, he thinks about the Platonist idea about there just being these abs, this abstract form of the good and so on that, that, that tries to say, yeah, there, there are moral values that really are out there, but they don't have any connection to personhood. As the moral argument is saying, if there really are these moral values out there, they only seem to make sense in the context, as I was saying, of relationship, command, commander, <coughs> obligation, obligator. Um, Platonism tries to say, yeah, there, are, there is goodness out there, and you should follow it, but you're, there's nothing personal about that goodness. It's not in a mind or in a character. It's not something to which you could... You know, it's a thing rather than a person. And my question there would be, well, can you be commanded by something that's not a person? Can you be obligated rightly? Can, can, does it make any sense to think of just the, the ideal of justice? Justice exists somewhere, but it's not the justice of a character that, that, that would act in the world. Does that really make sense? Isn't it lucky if there are these moral values that just happen to exist out there, like justice? Um, isn't it lucky that just by chance, beings like us who can think about moral and know who discover these moral values just happen to have come into existence without anybody intending that to happen? That would be a pretty, pretty wild coincidence. And it makes much more sense to say, you know, that that wouldn't be a wild coincidence if we are created by a person in whom these values and obligations and commands are rooted. That makes for a better explanation. So, and Ruth seems to agree. He says, plainness solutions don't seem to be the answer. Is God the default position here? I said, yes. This is interesting. But he's an atheist, remember? What is he going to do? He recognises, he said, there really are these objective moral values. I, I'm really having difficulty explaining it without bringing in God. The objectivity of morality is an illusion put in place by your genes to keep us social. This is the world of non-belief and such are the consequences. So in the end, he, he, he steps back from admitting that stomping on small children for fun is wrong which he said earlier, it doesn't explicitly make this connection, but it, it follows from what he's just said there. He's actually backpedaling from that and saying, now actually stomping off small children for fun is just something that my evolutionary history of my species has caused me not to like. Full stop. That's it. <laughs> really? So my, 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 my question for these kind of Mackie and Roos, which is really the bigger problem? Which is the bigger price tag? Where does wisdom point you? Should you pay? Which price tag? Having to believe that some kind of a god, personal, authoritative, moral figure exists? Or having to believe moral subjectivism? Having to say, it is not, objectively speaking, wrong to stomp on small babies for fun. Now, you know, all I can say is, personally, I think it's obvious which price tag is more difficult to pay, which one is wiser uh, to accept. Um, obviously, my intuitions on that differ from Michael Roos's and Dale Mackey's. Um, do, they really, do they really mean it? Again, the sort of 
what if you, okay, it's one thing to say that in your book or in an academic seminar, but how do they actually behave when they're walking down the street? <laughs> um, how do they behave when they're actually engaged in moral argumentation or when someone does something that upsets them or what have you? Do they then say, oh, I'm just, I, yeah, I, I act in, I mean, Richard Dawkins says this, he says, I act inconsistently with my, with my philosophical views on this. Um, I do get angry at people and so on. He, he points out that um, in a materialistic worldview, he thinks it follows that people don't have libertarian free will because everything is just a result of the laws of physics. So when people do something that annoys you, it's not really their fault, it's not their responsibility because they didn't have a choice about it. So, but if, if a lack of, of responsibility follows from believing in a materialistic worldview, then ethics goes completely by the board, doesn't it? You can't say, you should have done this. It, it's your fault for stomping on that child. Because it's not their fault. They, just, they were just following the laws of physics. But he says, yeah, I do get angry at people who, who do things, but that is inc that's inconsistent. Um, I can't help my evolutionary programming. Yeah. Somehow that evolutionary programming is so strong that he can't help getting annoyed, but it's not so strong that he hasn't been able to see, see through the illusion. It's this really powerful illusion that's foisted on us by evolution, but there are the few really, really strong-minded individuals like Michael Rose and Richard Dawkins who are able to see through this illusion and recognise that it's an illusion, even if they don't always have the, the, the mental willpower to act consistently with that. That's the kind of position we're in. Yeah. I'm just wondering, uh, where do they think this uh, programming comes from? Well, it's just in, in terms of survival value, behaving in some ways, <coughs> tended to spread genes more than behaving in other ways. And one of the ways of, of getting us to behave in a certain way is for us to have certain feelings about certain actions. And so if you have a mutation in, in an organism, uh, in a, a line of organisms that causes the brain chemistry to operate in a certain way, such that somehow, who knows, they feel that something on children is, 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 is icky, uh, makes them feel sick to the stomach, whatever, um, then they will have less tendency to stomp on small children. And if you stomp on small children less, then more of your children survive. Okay? Which means that more and more organisms will exist that have a feeling against stomping on their children. Um, that's the kind of account that they say. Um, but the, the, the really significant thing is when you add a full stop on the end of that sentence and then you say, and that is the entire explanation. That's all that's going on. Um, it could be true, that because that's a discussion about how come we, we have these feelings about what we should do and shouldn't do. Um, it's an entirely different issue to ask when we have those feelings, are we truthfully knowing something about how we should or shouldn't act? And just because you've got a, a material description of how come we feel a certain way, that doesn't prove that there is no moral obligation upon us to act this way or that way. And it doesn't, certainly doesn't show that, well, maybe the, the way in which God arranged for us to know about this moral value is through the fact that an evolutionary history would give us that kind of feeling, 
naturally. But he knew, he knew that, or maybe he had to guide it in some way so that we would have that feeling. Maybe we'd make sure that that's the way things happened, um, or so on. So there's all sorts of routes that you can, you can combine that story. So it doesn't, in and of itself, show that you know a material description can't again can't get you beyond the metaphysical discussion. Really, you still have to have that metaphysical discussion. It's still presupposing that uh, surviving is actually beautiful. Well, like, like that, if you wanted to go beyond that story, this is why I say, if, if you said, here's the evolutionary story of why we don't like incest as a species, if you want to then move beyond that, that is description to say, and therefore we ought not to commit incest, as David Hume famously argued, it's what he called it called the is-ought gap, that there's, there's a, a leap there that's not justified. You can't simply go from a, a, a description about reality that doesn't include a value to a, to a value conclusion. You need some other premise um, that brings in something beyond the mere scientific description of, of the way things happen to be. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, I really like Bruce, um, mm. but what's um, What's the actual argument that completes him from not being a total nihilist? Yeah, well, it, because he has this intuition of moral values. He, he sees these moral values, but then faced with the moral argument, he backpedals from them. Um, so in a sense, he is buying into moral nihilism at the end. He's saying that there are no more facts of the matter out there. Um, most of the guys who go that way then, then tend, tend to just sort of say so yeah, objectively speaking I'm a, I'm a nihilist, but that doesn't mean I need to be depressed um, I enjoy things, there are things in life where I, I don't like stomping on small children, I like looking after my grandchildren You know, that, gives, that makes me feel happy subjectively speaking, so everything's fine that's what they say which seems to me a very shallow <laughs> response to, to the situation they find themselves in. If you, if you really want the, the, the sort of hardcore, the atheists who follow this nihilism through to the end, you need to you know, go to Nietzsche and uh, Jean-Paul Sartre and the French existentialists and Camus and, and so on. Um, this sort of um, happy, smiley nihilism of the new atheism is a very sort of shallow philosophical response to, to the situation. Um, so if you combine that first premise that were there to be objective moral values, the best explanation for that would be in terms of some kind of a god, and you combine that with the premise that, well, there really are objective moral values, and I hope I've argued enough to show that you certainly shouldn't let the claim that, well, you can only know things through science stand in the way of you just saying, well, it's just obvious that there are these moral values, you combine those two together and of course it follows from those two that, that such a, a God exists. 